authority is a hotly contested topic these days. From the authority of the government to mandate masks on airplanes, to the authority of police officers in local communities, to the abuses of authorities we hear about in workplaces and churches and schools and families and seemingly every other place. We live in an age that has noticed the tendency of sinful fallen human beings to abuse authority. In light of the obvious abuses that have gone on in human history, in American history, and perhaps in our own lives and histories, shouldn't we be skeptical of any claim to authority? Well, this morning we're going to see the authority of the Lord Jesus on display. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 1. We'll be in verses 21 to 45 this morning. So far in the book of Mark, we've seen John the Baptist come on the scene as the authoritative heavenly messenger. He prepared the way for Israel's coming king, and so the Lord Jesus showed up. He was baptized, and there at his baptism, he was declared to be the Son of God. There, God the Father anointed God the Son with God the Holy Spirit. And Jesus came on in verses 14 and 15 the scene preaching that the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And then in verses 16 to 20, last week we considered Jesus' call to follow him to his first disciples and that Christ must be our higher authority and priority in our lives, even than our vocations, even than our families. And so we arrive at chapter 1, verses 21 to 45 this morning. We'll consider four different scenes And the main idea of our passage is simply this. Jesus is the Holy One of God, the authoritative herald and healer of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the Holy One of God, the authoritative herald and healer of the the kingdom of God. So read with me Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as one of the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons." 
He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Amen. Well, our first scene is found in verses 21 to 28, entitled, Jesus in the Synagogue. Verse 21 sets the stage in Capernaum, which was right on the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus had just called his first disciples. The town would become, become a kind of home base for Jesus' ministry going forward. And so you see that in verse 21, Jesus enters the synagogue, which was the local Jewish religious kind of social club, but also place of religious instruction. And, and there he began to teach. But there was something peculiar about his teaching. You see that in verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. You see, for the Jewish religious teachers of the day, they would instruct their congregations by commenting on commentators who commented on a passage. So they would say something like, all right, you know, they would read the scripture, and they'd say, Rabbi Hillel says this, uh, but Rabbi so-and-so says that. A third rabbi says it could be this. Rabbi so-and-so comments on Rabbi Hillel that it might be this other thing. And it was just this commentary on a commentary. There's really no authority about it. And so you can imagine people's shock when Jesus started saying things like, you've heard it said, for example, in Matthew 5, and then he'll quote some popular religious teaching of the Jewish leaders of the day. But I say to you, I mean, who does this guy think he is? What credentials does he have? None? Well, then what's all this? Of at the time being fulfilled, the kingdom of God being at hand, and all the rest. Jesus' teaching was marked by authority. And while that would have been a shock to the synagogue attendees on that Sabbath, Saturday afternoon, you know, to us who've seen chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, uh, for those who've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit, well, it's really no surprise to you and me, is it? Of course Jesus would teach with authority. He has God's Holy Spirit. He's been anointed to preach good news. That's why he's come. Would you expect the Son of God to be ignorant of God's word? 
or to be indecisive or insecure or unconvinced. No, he taught authoritatively. You know, for every other human being, for you and I, every one of us, all our statements have an implicit or explicit asterisk which states, I think, on everything we say, right? We're going to have an evening service tonight, I think. Uh, There's all kinds of things that, you know, we can be relatively certain about, we can plan for, but only Jesus can speak authoritatively about the truth of God. And we see that authority play out in verses 23 to 26. Verse 23 reads, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Uh, Friends, notice three things. Number one, the demon-possessed man approaches Jesus, right? Jesus wasn't looking for a fight. The fight came to him. Two, notice the demon's right understanding of Jesus, his accurate understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus is truly man, right? He's Jesus of Nazareth. He was born as a baby. He was a carpenter. He grew hungry, tired, dirty, sweaty, sick. And he is truly the Holy One of God. He is like no one else on planet Earth. He's like nothing else in the heavenly realms because he is God himself. He is God in flesh. This is known, this doctrine, this truth is known as the hypostatic union, which states that Jesus Christ is the Son of God incarnate. There's one person with two nature, the divine nature and human nature. These two natures are not mixed. They're not blended. Jesus isn't partly God and partly human. He is truly and fully God, and he is truly and fully human. And the demon apparently knows this. The the third thing to note about the demon's speech is his fear of Jesus. You know, I mean, what could be less intimidating to a demonic existed for ages past unless that man also happens to be the Holy One of God, unless he's the Son of God incarnate. This demon knew that the the holiness of God is bad news for him and for his wickedness because God endorses no evil. He condones no uncleanness or wickedness. And the Lord has promised that on the day of the Lord, he will do away with all sin all injustice, all malevolence, all wickedness, all selfishness. The demon is afraid because he thinks that day of judgment might be happening then and there. Friends, this is an appropriate response of a sinful being to a holy God. And yet Jesus doesn't, I wonder if you noticed, he doesn't even bother responding to the demon's provocations. You see his response in verse 25. Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. You know, friends, when we talk about spiritual warfare, we shouldn't do so in a way so as to imply that Jesus, that God, 
and Satan are on equal footing. Like, oh, this is a really close battle, like Celtics versus Bucks. No, this is no competition. There's no debating the outcome. We're not worried about what might happen. The outcome has never been in doubt because the Lord Jesus' supremacy and power over Satan is supreme. Make no mistake, the devil exists, his demons exist according to the will of God. And when it no longer suits God's purposes, they will be done away with. The day of destruction is coming for the devil. And so C.S. Lewis, I think, you know, really aptly states the two dangers when it comes to the spiritual realm and the demonic. In his book, Screwtape Letters, he says, you know, mistake number one that humans being, human beings can make is to obsess over the demonic, to become so intrigued by it that that's what we think about and, and orient around, and, and we just obsess over it. And, and, you know, I wonder, this mistake perhaps could be more pronounced in non-modern societies, non-Western societies today, perhaps because of the very evident and active role of the demonic that it's, you know, patently obvious. And, and so we, we shouldn't, you know, fall into that error. But perhaps the more common mistake for us Christians in the West, in the high modern society, is to simply ignore the demonic realm, to act as though spiritual warfare isn't a real thing. Here we see at the outset of Jesus' ministry that just when God's kingdom is advancing, well, so too Satan's kingdom is raging. So we needn't be afraid but we shouldn't be naive either. As we plant and begin Trinity Church of Bedford, my guess is Satan's not too pleased about that. So may we at Trinity Church of Bedford, may we trust God, may he give us grace as we recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but the rulers and authorities in the spiritual realm. And, and you know, once Jesus has exercised this demon, the response in the synagogue is predictable. You, you see it there in verse 27. The people ask, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame, literally the report about him, spread everywhere. And so notice that really this whole first scene orients around the question of who is Jesus. The demon has confessed who he is. Jesus has silenced that demon the people, it's, it's really interesting. It, it literally says the report about him, his fame. The people are not so much questioning and talking about the demon coming out. They're talking about Jesus, his fame, the report about him. Who is this Jesus who teaches with authority? Who is this Jesus? who commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Mark's already told us the answer. The demon has just told us the answer. But we'll continue to see as Mark's gospel progresses, as human beings come to wrestle with and identify with, identify Jesus and understand who he truly is. Let's turn now to our second scene in verses 29 to 34, entitled, Jesus Heals. Verse 29 reads, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. 
with James and John. Here we have nothing less than biblical justification and support for the after-church meal. So go, please, and put that into practice this afternoon. And then in verses 30 and 31, Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. You know, a need is present. It's brought to Jesus' attention, and Jesus helps. Simple as that. Yet this scene also serves to anticipate the many times and the many ways that women will come to be involved in Jesus' ministry as his followers. You see, the kingdom of God, though we've seen only men yet called, Simon and Andrew, James and John, well, it's of course by no means restricted to men. Now, as the story of Mark unfolds, we'll see time and again faithful women following Jesus and even supporting his ministry. You know, it's really interesting. It's one of the realities of church history that the majority of people who have professed faith in Christ are women. In the church, the majority of the people have been ladies. And so the scriptures do call men and only men to the office of pastor and elder. This in no way denigrates the massive role that women play in the kingdom of God. And so here's Simon's mother-in-law in a small but beautiful way. You know, she's healed by Jesus. And then she, what does she do with that new health? She serves. She serves others. What a wonderful picture of our calling as disciples. And I think it's really interesting. I, see, I think we see kind of a, an analog to prayer there at the end of verse 30. Did you catch it? She's ill with a fever, and literally, they spoke to him concerning her. That's often what we're doing in prayer, isn't it? We say, Father, my child is sick. Please heal him. Heavenly Father, my friend walks as an enemy, as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Draw her to yourself. Uh, Trinity Church of Bedford, may we be a praying people, regularly lifting up our family and friends to the throne of grace, speaking to our Heavenly Father concerning them, asking for his help and his intervention. But Simon's mother-in-law isn't the last healing to take place that day. You know, verses 32 and 34 detail the large crowds that gathered at the door as the whole city came to witness this authoritative herald and healer. You see, verse 34 kind of sums the matter up. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. You know, just briefly note that Mark distinguishes between those two groups of people. Do you notice that? There are those who, had, who were sick and those who had demons. Mark didn't have this you know, primitive belief that all illness is a result of demonic activity. And, and second, notice that, that last somewhat puzzling statement there at the end of verse 34. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We already saw this back in verse 24 in the synagogue. Why wouldn't Jesus want the demons to speak? If they knew him, I mean, wasn't that the whole reason he came? To make himself known? Well, yes and no. You see, Jesus did not yet want people broadcasting his true identity. 
because they were so liable to misunderstand that identity at this point in time. You know, once people realized that he was the Christ, the Son of God, well, the crowds, the disciples, the religious leaders, the Romans, they would misunderstand what Jesus came to do. They would conceive of him primarily as affecting a military and political revolution. But that's not why he came, was it? No, his kingdom was the heavenly kingdom, the spiritual kingdom of God. He is Israel's true king, make no doubt about it, make no mistake. And yet the exact implications of that, well, they weren't fully known here in Mark chapter 1. We see this reality play out, especially clearly in Matthew 16. There Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. Your heavenly father has revealed this to you, Peter. But right after Peter has rightly confessed Jesus' identity, he wrongly confesses what that means. So in Matthew 16, 21, we read, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So he's explaining, yeah, you have my identity, right? Now let me tell you guys what that means. And do you remember how Peter responds? And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, though Peter finally understood that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, he misunderstood the implications of that. He didn't understand that the identity of Jesus was not making him immune from suffering, but leading him to suffering. Jesus would be king. He would rule from a bloody cross. The way up is down in the kingdom of God. So this is sometimes known as the messianic secret, that Jesus wanted to keep secret his true identity at least until his death and resurrection. Because at that point, well, now all the cards are on the table. Now people can see the totality of his work. They can begin to understand exactly what he came to do. Let's turn now to our third section in verses 35 to 39, entitled the herald who heals. It's been a a long Sabbath day for Jesus with teaching in the synagogue, healing Peter's mother-in-law, afternoon lunch, the sun setting and the whole town coming to Jesus for healing. Then look what we find in verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. I wonder if you notice the timestamps that Mark provides for us. Look at verse 32 again. Verse 32 says that people began to bring their sick to Jesus at sundown. And here in verse 35, Jesus arose very early to pray before the sun had risen. You know, simply put, Jesus spent himself for the good of others. He gave his time to others. He poured himself out to serve them. And so Trinity Church of Bedford, it is a Christ-like thing to stay up late ministering to others. Perhaps it's not a need that you invited or asked for, but it's a need that's arisen. 
Maybe it's with a child or a spouse. Maybe it's with a friend. It's a Christ-like thing to do, to stay up late ministering to them. And also, it's a Christ-like thing to do to get up very early to pray. You know, I don't think we're supposed to take away from this that Jesus was regularly staying up past sundown ministering and rising extremely early to pray. I don't think this is necessarily Jesus' daily itinerary. But his example is obviously instructive to us, right? I mean, if Jesus needed to pray, we need to pray. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, is there a day this week that you can set your alarm 15 minutes earlier? You know what Jesus was praying about. Maybe he was praising the Father, just enjoying communion with him. Maybe he was praying for those he had healed. Maybe he was praying for the ministry he was about to do. Depending on your work and your health and your family situation, it could be difficult for you to, to rise early. So maybe set aside some time in the middle of your day. But may we be a praying people, as our Lord was. And yet, while Jesus snuck off, apparently not everyone was so pleased with this. You see that in verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. You know, it's really interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. That verb for Peter, for Simon, looking for Jesus, searching for Jesus, every other time it's used in Mark's gospel, it's used to indicate a negative, hostile pursuit that's going on. The picture seems to be of Peter angrily searching for Christ. You know, asking, where in the world have you been? You, you put the town on notice. Uh, we had to keep turning people away. And can you believe the angry looks they gave us? You can't just up and leave like that. You're famous now. You know, we got to get the PR machine going. We, we don't want to waste this. Let's get back to town. To which Jesus responds in verse 38. Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there, for that is why I came out. You know, verse 37 is just one example, just the first of many examples of Jesus' disciples not getting it. They seem to think that Jesus came primarily as a wonder worker. He was a healer on demand, an exorcist extraordinaire. And yet, here in verse 38, Jesus clarifies. He came to preach. That's what verse 38 says. That's what verse 39 demonstrates. You see, Jesus was primarily a teacher and secondarily a healer and miracle worker. I wonder if you've noticed how in every instance, Jesus did not seek out the healing. Did you notice that? In verse 14, he preached. He taught in verse 21. He tells us his mission statement here in verse 38. And he even goes and accomplishes it in verse 39. But when the healings have taken place, well, the demon-possessed man approached him. The disciples told Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law. The town brought the people to the door of the house. And then the leper is going to come run up to him shortly. And every time, Jesus is not seeking out these things. But in his compassion, he is healing. But his main ministry is one of preaching. The word of God was primary in Jesus' ministry. So it was in Jesus' ministry, and so it should be in Jesus' church. This is why Christians have historically understood the mission of the church to be making disciples. 
to teach the word of God to believers and unbelievers alike is our unique calling and charge. And so mercy ministry and all good causes must always support and never overshadow the ministry of the word. And, you know, again, there, just, there really are two ditches here that we don't want to fall into, right? The first error is to say we're a soul-winning church. We don't have anything to do with helping the poor or caring for the needy or anything like that. Well, that's wrong. That's wrong because Christ's love and compassion were evident throughout his healing ministry. He did indeed heal the sick. And so Christians should seek to do tangible good to their neighbors. As a church, we should commit time and resources to caring for the hurting. And yet, we shouldn't fall into the second ditch, which is to say that word ministry, well, that's more optional. That's more secondary. And service ministry is primary. Christians exist, they say, some say, to be a blessing. Churches exist merely to obey the great commandment, love God and love neighbor, and not so much the great commission, making disciples. Preaching, well, it's seen as optional. The church increasingly comes to be dominated with good, though optional, things throughout the week. The church slowly but surely becomes yet another purveyor of, of social goods, social help. You know, with all the tangible and physical needs around Jesus, you can imagine Jesus' heartbreak at the pain. And yet his primary calling was not to be a healer but to be a herald. And so, Trinity Church of Bedford, may God give us grace to walk in Jesus' footsteps. You know, as we'll see in just a few verses in our final scene, the love of Christ often will compel us to serve others in very real and practical ways. You know, that's what Jesus did. And yet, we must never forget our primary calling as a church. While other organizations can serve the homeless or care for the jobless, only Christians can save people from the wrath to come through the preaching of the gospel. May God give us grace. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to walk this line. That's why I pray for other elders. Pray for the Lord to raise up other men to help lead this church. It's hard. How do we do this well? May God give us grace. Let's turn to our final scene now in verses 40 to 45 entitled, Willing and Able. In verse 40, we read, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Friends, this is an astounding statement. Astounding. Do you remember what happened when what Kate just read, the, the king gets the letter saying, hey, please heal Naaman. <clears throat> Excuse me, the guy, <clears throat> the king tears his robes. He's like, ah, I'm not God. I can't do that. Huh. Jesus can do that. Leprosy was an umbrella term referring to a multitude of skin diseases the Old Testament is quite clear about how these individuals were to be excluded from the life of Israel. 
So in Leviticus 13, 44 and 45, we read, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. Let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so a man with this condition has the audacity, the faith, to come to Jesus confident that he is able. He's able to do what the Mosaic law can't do. He's able to do what the king couldn't do. He's able to do more than even Elisha can do. And thus we see that faith is humble regarding self, yet confident regarding Christ. True faith is humble regarding self, yet confident regarding Christ. Because again, he recognizes this leper that Jesus is able to cleanse him. So likewise we, when we face trials of various kinds, we should never doubt that God is able to heal and to restore God is able to transform. In our sorrows, let us never countenance the idea that God was somehow powerless to prevent our pain. The Lord Jesus heals regularly. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. God knows all things. Sickness and affliction don't catch him by surprise. He is able to heal. And so the question that the leper asks and the one that we so often ask is, are you willing, O oh God? We ask this question because God does, at times, will us to walk through valleys. He calls us to endure some affliction. But this doesn't mean that God doesn't care. No, it's because he cares that he's working some greater good for us in our trials. You know, as earthly parents know this, how many times have earthly parents caused their children to cry and weep because they're working for some greater good for their children? So too, our Heavenly Father knows what is best for us. And we, while we don't always understand why, why this affliction, why this trial persists, yet we can be assured that, that He does. He has a plan. And so this leper says, if you will, you can make me clean. But look especially at Jesus' response in verse 41. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. Oh, friends, oh, this verse is like a diamond that we're going to be looking at for all eternity. This reality is a diamond that we're going to be looking at for ages to come. That opening phrase, moved with pity, it's really kind of like, uh, if you don't have an ESV, I'm curious what your translation says. It, it's almost impossible to translate kind of in one phrase because it's so rich a term. It can be translated moved to his core or his heart being stirred or overflowing with pity and compassion, touched to his heart. It speaks to the deep reserves of love and concern that the Lord Jesus has for us. It communicates his deep desire and affection. When Jesus sees the, the suffering of this man and his earnest desire for healing, it's as if he can't, he can't help but be overcome with 
love and compassion and mercy. His heart yearns and breaks to see his pain. And, and so if that's the case, why did Christ ordain, you know, as God, why did Christ ordain this man to suffer in this way? If he wanted this man's healing, why did he give this man this chronic illness for so long? I think Lamentations 3.33 has one answer for us. Lamentations 3.33 reads, For God does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. That is, when God afflicts us, it does not delight him. When he grieves us through some hard and strange providence, it gives him no pleasure. It's not his joy. He does it reluctantly, as it were. So Jesus here is not indifferent to this man's pain, and neither is God indifferent to yours. But notice that Christ's love, well, it doesn't just stop at sentimentality. His love is effective. But Jesus doesn't simply speak like he did with the demon-possessed man to solve the problem. But what does verse 41 say? Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. Friends, when was the last time this man had enjoyed the touch of another? When had he last been held or hugged, kissed, or embraced? According to Leviticus 13, people would have had to stay far away, but not Christ. He drew near, and closer than near, he touched him. And notice that Jesus doesn't become unclean by this. The man becomes clean. As the Holy One of God, the white hot, burning purity that is Jesus Christ is not overwhelmed by this man's uncleanness. It rather purifies him. Jesus is not defiled by it. Jesus does what Elisha could not do. Elisha said, you're going to know there's a prophet in Israel by this. Oh, friends, Jesus is more than a prophet. In verses 33 or 43 and 44, Jesus strictly charged the man to keep quiet about what happened. But verse 45 concludes our passage. But when he went out, he began to preach about it and to spread the news. It's actually the same exact word that was used of John the Baptist in Jesus. This guy becomes an evangelist. Because of what has happened to him, nothing can stop him. Because of what Jesus has done for him, nothing can stop him from telling others about it. That may be with us. May we be bold in telling the good news to others. And, and the result, you see, is that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in desolate places. I think here we find a beautiful illustration of the doctrine of substitution. Previously, the leper was consigned to desolate places. Now he could come in the city. Jesus, who previously could go about in the city, well, now he was consigned 
to the wilderness, desolate places. In this, in taking this man's uncleanness away and substituting himself for the margins of society, the Lord Jesus foreshadowed a greater work, where on the cross, Jesus would die as our substitute, where he would take our uncleanness away, where he would grant us his purity and righteousness. He died the death we deserve so that we might enter the kingdom of God. Because that's what, this, that's what these miracles have really been about. You know, how do Christ's healing, how do his healings relate to his heralding? Well, first, it demonstrates his authority. Second, it demonstrates his compassion. And third, it demonstrates that the kingdom of God has drawn near, where there will be no more tears, no more sickness, no more sorrow. And so now as we await the fullness of that kingdom, our resurrected and ascended Lord, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Holy One of God, well, he is still filled with compassion and pity so that whatever sins you have committed, whatever uncleannesses exist in your past, all your sins will be washed away if you but turn to him. Oh, friend, if you've not done so, do that today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed by your compassion. Oh, we praise you. We are unclean because of our sin. And yet you did not recoil, but drew near. You have granted us your purity and your holiness and your righteousness through nothing in us, through no good deed on our behalf. Father, if there are any here who have not trusted in Christ, we pray that you'd work that faith in them even now. Father, we pray that you'd help us to be a compassionate and praying people, even as your son was. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.